The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, I'm Jack Wilson. Welcome to the History of Literature. Episode 8, The Classic of Poetry. Okay, so I've been struggling a little bit with this one. I've been busy for the holidays trying to get my thoughts in order. I do have some ideas about the 300 or so poems that are known as the classic of poetry or book of songs. This is a story with a villain, maybe. We'll see. We'll get there. I've been reading these poems and reading about these poems for days. I have a lot of thoughts. But first, wanted to see where we are. Take stock. Remember, we started this journey with episode zero, where we set out our project, which was to answer the question, is literature dying? Is it? I don't know. I don't know. And I know common commenters say, I'll never give up paper, or ebook sales have plateaued. But that's not what I'm talking about. That's, that's not what I meant when I asked the question whether literature is dying. I don't mean that books are going away, paper books. That's a different argument, not one that interests me that much. I mean literature, a novel, poetry, short story. These have been essential to me, and they were essential to our culture not that long ago. People turned to fiction and poetry and short stories and drama and essays. Something about literature satisfied an absence. But what if that absence is filled with other things now? What if our entertainment need is filled? Or our need for education, instruction? What if literature becomes this dusty little niche, only there for oddballs and nostalgics? And if your argument is, I'll never give up literature, I love literature, well, Ask yourself, are you an oddball or a nostalgic? I mean, I'm with you. I'm your, I'm your fellow oddball, your fellow nostalgic, but I just wonder, are we as a society putting literature in some kind of corner? Is it becoming a relic? I used to travel across borders with literature. It was a, a fundamental principle of literature for me, one of the things that drew me to books the most. The internet might be better at that. It might be. It might give me access to people, their minds and their thoughts and their inner worlds. Okay. Picking a fight. I don't mean to pick a fight with my listeners. Maybe the internet isn't better. Maybe we can never say that. But the internet will give us something better than literature can give us. But what if it supplies a need and fills a hole and the holes just aren't there anymore? People don't need to turn to literature. I ran across an article on Slate the other day talking about Barnes & Noble and the UK equivalent, Waterstones. Barnes & Noble doing everything wrong. Waterstones turning things around, having some success. A chain bookstore in the UK is having some success. 
Now, is this true? I don't know. I had, had the sense that the author of the article may have had sort of a, a particular slant, and for all I know, things were selected to make his points more than, more than being based in actual sales records and numbers. But just listen to this description of Barnes & Noble. Ron Bois, the company's third chief executive in two years, suggested shifting the business away from reading toward things like games, gifts, and art supplies. He seemed particularly excited about 3D printing and those adult coloring books, which Bois said capitalized on a new vogue among consumers for, quote, physical interaction with things. Now, does that, does that not strike you as a perfect description of a Barnes & Noble these days? How true that is and how sad. Barnes & Noble, where you can hardly find the books, reminds me of a Stephen King essay that I read once where he was trying to find literary magazines and journals. I think he was judging the best American short stories. Someone else might remember this better than me. He was asked to judge that anthology, Best American Short Stories. So he went to his bookstore. I'm doing this all from memory, so I may be getting some details wrong. He had to lie down on one side or squeeze between a bookshelf or something, bookshelf and a wall. Some crazy maneuver to get at Plowshares or the Kenyan Review or something. He had this idea that he needed to read these stories from these little magazines, and then he walked into a bookstore and he was amazed at how hard it was to find these literary magazines. Is that where we're headed? With books? The Barnes & Noble I go to, I walk in. The whole lower floor is maps and journals and all kinds of other stuff. Magnifying glasses. Reading implements. And then you take the escalator up, there's toys, board games. That 3D printer they're so proud of. Vinyl records, stuffed animals, puzzles, decks of cards. You walk past all of that before you get to the books. Fiction, philosophy, history, poetry, all there tucked in the back. How much longer before it's crowded out altogether, before we're all lying down like Stephen King, <laughs> trying to reach through some little mouse hole to grab a book from the back. Waterstones, there's more hope. The guy in charge of Waterstones is a bookseller. He's trying to help readers. Did you catch that in the quote? The, uh, the Barnes & Noble quote on Bois? Suggested shifting the business away from reading. Away from reading. The guy at Waterstones was a successful manager of owner of an independent bookstore. A chain of them, I think. Six or eight or something. So why does he work at Waterstones? Why does he do a deal with the devil? He pointed out that it helped publishers, the small and medium-sized publishers that he enjoyed, whose books he enjoyed selling. They needed Waterstones. They sold most of their books there. So what did he do? He went in. He ended what's called bookstore backsheesh, where publishers pay to have their books placed in a certain way. Those displays, those towers, 
Those aren't selected based on merit. Those are bought and paid for. I know it's that's not a secret, but I think we forget about that sometimes. You walk in and you think, oh wow, this must be this must be the hot new book. This must be the one everyone's reading. Well, maybe. And maybe it's something that's being forced on us by the publishers and the bookstores who are complicit, who take their money, who com- sorry, who are complicit, who take their money. And what the Waterstones chief executive found was that it was, at first, it was kind of a tough decision to make. It was $50 million that they were giving up. Not easy to do when you're going bankrupt. All those towers of books. And this guy said, hey, we're going to give it up. We're going bankrupt anyway. We'll give up the $50 million. Maybe it's because we're letting publishers determine what to highlight that we're going bankrupt. Books aren't fungible. There's good books and there's bad books. If we sell a bunch of crappy books, if we force a, a piece of garbage on a customer, they might find other things to do with their time. They might keep that book, dip into it. That might be the only book they have for two months before they give up and say, you know what? I'm enjoying Netflix a lot more than this. And... One of his other points, things that he did, let's find out what books people want to read and put those on our displays. Let's think about the reader who walks in the door, not just the customer. And let's think about the neighborhood. Let's think about who's coming in, who our customers are. Some areas, the interest might be different from other areas. We don't need a national campaign where the same books are placed on towers in the same stores. So this article, like I said, it's a little one-sided. That's worrisome. I'm not sure exactly how true it is, but hey, it gave me some room for hope. I love the idea that reading will return. Maybe we'll burn out of all this other stuff. The pace of change is too fast. I think that's fair to say. I don't think I'm just a grumpy old man saying that hard to keep up with software updates. Every time I learn an interface for some program, it changes, might be improved, but still, it's hard to learn. Everything I learn becomes obsolete. Someone someday is going to sell me a phone based on the advertising campaign that it won't change for 10 years and it'll do what I want. <laughs> it's good enough. <laughs> Every phone I have is good enough. Then I get one that's a little bit better. The battery runs out or whatever, and I have to get one. And I have to learn everything all over. I know. Cranky old man. I run this blog and this podcast. Everything breaks all the time. There's constant updates. I'll be checking the traffic. There'll be this huge dip. Turns out some little thing was tweaked. Everything went to hell. It all takes time. It makes me feel like I'm on a merry-go-round, a carousel, spinning out of control. Maybe that's the gap that literature will serve. Meditation used to be my caffeine, used to be the thing that stimulated me. Maybe it will be my yoga. So 
How have things gone so far in our quest? Gilgamesh, the Epic of Gilgamesh. Loved it. I loved the epic form, the nation building, and I was astonished at the the detail, the human detail I found in there. I loved reading such an ancient work, spending all that time in the pre-biblical era. It's so fascinating to get out ahead of the Old Testament and examine the morality of a people that I felt like I could identify with in some sense. And yet they had something I would never have, which is a world that the Old Testament hasn't influenced. And I was amazed by the treatment of sex and friendship and courage and leadership, all those values. It felt surprisingly fresh and modern. The translation was very helpful in that. And there was Noah. That that book had Noah. What a nice surprise to see Noah as an old man, the survivor of a great flood, living on a mountain with his wife. Kind of tricky, kind of cranky, very funny. I loved it. Point for literature. Is literature dying? A point in the column that says that it's not was how much I loved the Epic of Gilgamesh. And then there's the Old Testament. What can you say about that? God as a character is as strange as ever. And Job, we did a whole episode on Job, a mini episode. Job still is noble, as I remembered. And the book of Job is still as admirable as I remembered, maybe even better, maybe even more so. That book has balls. Excuse my French. Oh, boy. Probably a better way to phrase that. I should probably probably go back and edit that, but no, I'll leave it as it is. That's what I mean. Good old book of Job. Then we went to Homer, another epic. I was amazed by the poetry. Once again, surprised by the detail in these books. I hadn't recalled that. How good and how sensitive the details were. Some ways it's not as impressive when you reach back, when you're immersed in contemporary literature, and then you reach back, the old stuff seems a little bit stodgy, a little bit stale. But if you look at what it emerged from, you immerse yourself in cave paintings and then go forward, you think, how did this get here? So fully formed, how engaging, how dynamic. The poetry is spectacular in Homer. I was more struck by Homer's powers of observation, the details of character in the physical world. Blind bard. This this guy was a blind bard? Maybe that meant he was blind when he was in the world because through language and through art, his vision was so powerful. Who knows? And Sappho. Oh, Sappho was awesome too. I had not known much about her personally. And I was excited to learn that her world and the place that she held in it was so striking. She was the first celebrity author that we've looked at. She was more like a singer, like a folk singer. A rock star, probably more accurate. And the people who heard the the songs of hers, remember Solon? I want to learn this song by Sappho and die. 
and the respect she commanded when she traveled around and people built statues because she was about to arrive. The strong females in the society she came from, the respect that they were accorded. The Greeks had a fine sensitivity, such a devotion to aesthetics. We saw this in both of the tragedy episodes we did and in the comedy of Aristophanes. The Dionysian festival. What do we have to that that's comparable? Sundance? Where do we celebrate art as a community? In tragedy, the highest and noblest art of all, according to Aristotle. All in all, I'd say literature has been giving me what I'd hoped for. We are on our way. And the journey will continue after this break. So we're jumping over to China now. We've been in Mesopotamia and Greece mostly. But there was a great grand tradition developing independently on the other side of the globe. This is a culture that developed paper and the printing press. Now, if you listen to last Thursday's podcast episode, you'll know my own experience with and my respect for the Chinese language, Chinese characters, and Chinese poetry. They have this respect too. Poetry was and is deeply integrated into the Chinese education. But much of what we think of today as the classic Chinese poetry actually comes much later. The great refined poetry of the Tang Dynasty, for example, we're not that far yet in our timeline. That comes in the 1700s AD. We're still in BC, about 1000 to 500 BC somewhere around the time of Homer, Sappho, and Greek tragedy. That's our era. This is important. Later, we'll have the figure of the poet, Li Bai and Tu Fu, for example. But the poems we're talking about today in the Shijang, or the Book of Songs, or the Classic of Poetry, aren't the work of a single poet. There's no author or romantic figure attached to them. There's a selector. There's an editor, but we'll get to that. No, there's no author. These are the songs of the people. Folk songs. Verse. Many are what we might call rustic. There's a tradition in literature that we'll see over and over again of the rediscovery or the preservation of the songs of the people, of the folk, the common people. Some examples are, you might be more familiar with are Robert Burns in Scotland. Wordsworth and Coleridge had a similar project. Rediscover something more primitive, more earthy, more natural, less sophisticated. Grimm's fairy tales did this. We saw this in our oral tradition, in a sense, the gathering of stories and songs into epics like Gilgamesh, or Homer, probably, or the stories and psalms of the Old Testament. 
what do we gain? What do these types of literature have to give us? In innocence, maybe, they come across as less sophisticated, less urbane, less cosmopolitan, less knowing, less ironic, self-reflective. Maybe that's not quite right. Maybe ironic isn't quite the word. There is irony and humor, but it's the irony and humor of a simpler time, more about life and humanity than civilization. For years, I resisted this kind of literature, the style of poetry, probably not a young person's style. I remember once I was in Scotland with my friend, my old college roommate. We went to a bookstore, and he picked up a copy of Robert Burns' poetry. He was eager to read it. He was living in Scotland after all, so why not learn more about one of Scotland's favorite sons? He's a great hero in Scotland. I remember him picking up the book at the store and saying, I can't believe this is only a pound. I'm so excited that he had this purchase. Very affordable. Going to give him a, a good dose of something that was important for him to read. Enjoyable. Then we got back to his house. We collapsed into our chairs and read our books for a while. After about 10 minutes, he looked up from the book and said, I can't believe I paid a pound for this. <laughs> and so it goes, especially with young people. We want the latest technology, the latest writing, the up-to-date, the current. It's hard to read. When you're young, it's hard to read a sensibility that can't wink and nod along with us because you know everything. You know not only the poems and the feelings in them, but you know how to feel about them. You don't want just the pure, unmitigated form. You want the overlay of commentary on top of it. You want to wink and nod along with the poem. You want it to be sly and sarcastic and cool. That's the voice you want. These poems in the classic of poetry are not that. They're earnest, wistful, hopeful. Here's one. It's called Plums Are Falling. Plums are falling. Seven are the fruits. Many men want me. Let me have a fine one. Plums are falling. Three are the fruits. Many men want me. Let me have a steady one. Plums are falling. Catch them in the basket. Many men want me. Let me be bride of one. The translation by Stephen Owen. How simple that is. Now, might mean very little to us today. I would not try to ask a 14-year-old boy or girl to listen thinking that they'll find any resonance at all with their current life and what they're going through. So what's the pleasure? Why do we read poems like this? Is it just imagining history, imagining the world where people found that to be relevant to them when they sang songs like that to one another? I think as you get older, you might appreciate this style of poetry a little more. I've seen a lot of marriages and relationships run their course. I've seen the happy ones and the unhappy ones. Thinking about this in a pure, stripped-down form, 
someone on the verge of their lifelong relationship, wondering, wondering what it will be like, hoping for the best, something steady, the values that this speaker is giving us. Let's me think about life, let's me reflect, doesn't get in my way, doesn't think for me. Maybe I don't need a novel. Maybe I don't need pyrotechnic prose I used to be so drawn to. Maybe I need this. Here's another one called Fishhawks. Or Fishhawk. The fishhawks sing guang guang on sandbars of the stream. Gentle maiden, pure and fair, prepare for a prince. That's another Stephen Owen translation. Maybe that's enough. The nostalgia. Maybe it gives me space to think about the women I knew in the prime of their youth and adolescence. The fishhawks sing guan guan on sandbars of the stream. That sets the mood, the tone, puts me in the right frame of mind to understand to envision this gentle maiden, pure and fair. Now, the gentle maidens I knew were not only fit for a prince, they were fit for being whatever they wanted, lawyers, doctors, CEOs, professors, entrepreneurs, scientists, or nothing at all, just beautiful people, kind people. It's that emotion, that stillness, the moment in time that the poetry gives me Reminds me of that moment when snow falls in someone's hair, the vision I have, a memory I have of snow falling in a woman's hair. She shook it out. And you think, maybe you've never seen anything that beautiful in your life. And later a friend comes up to you and says, did you see when she shook that snow out of her hair? My God! And you think, this wasn't about me. It wasn't about me seeing things. It was about her. It was visible to everyone. That she was young and beautiful and amazing. She was natural. She was in nature. Had this moment in nature. And I was just there to see it and remember it. The moment of life that's passed by. Moment of beauty. That's what this poem does. There's 305 poems like this in the Xi Jing. We think they were written from 1000 to 500 BC. And the speakers are women and men. They have these descriptions of different sentiments, objects. It's not just the day-to-day, and it's not just the, will my true love come? There's also the point of view of soldiers and courtiers and diplomats and people trying to Find out what it means to live in a state. That's maybe giving them a little more knowingness than they have. Describing, depicting what it means to be a person being asked to go to war. They come from the people, but don't get me wrong. These also had a poetic overlay. It's like Homer or the Grimm brothers or Gilgamesh. Whoever preserved these wrote them, edited them, refined them harmonized them, had a poetic sensibility. We simply don't know how much input that person had. That's been lost to history. 
in some ways, maybe that's not an important point. It's an important historical point. Maybe it's not so important from a reader's perspective. The way they come to us appear as if they're songs from the past, molded by many voices, honed, shared, polished. I wish I could say the same about the selection. Here we have to come to terms with the collection and gathering process and the ultimate results. We have to think about Confucius. Confucius is an important literary figure in his own right. We'll have more to say about him, just as we'll discuss his rough contemporary, Plato. There's a lot of similarities between the two. There's many positive aspects to both, and there's maybe some negative aspects that we'll look at. Many admirable qualities of Confucius, although his admirable qualities a little controversial. Let's just say there are many things that people admire about him, and there are certain of them that I value more than others. He encouraged people to respect and value education and teachers, which I wholeheartedly support. Education is lifelong. He believed in the power of poetry as a basis for learning and self-reflection. I appreciate that too. And we may have Confucius to thank for these 305 poems that we have in the classic of poetry. Without him and his influence, they might not have been used as part of the Chinese education. Without Confucius, they might not have survived at all. But they did survive. And then there's this fact. There were 3,000 or so poems which Confucius narrowed down to 305. And that makes us consider the selection that he made. What was, what criteria did he use? Are they the same criteria that we'd have used? Because I depart from Confucius in some major ways. He was writing during a period of war and turmoil. And like Thomas Hobbes, centuries later, his response to that was authority. Strong authority could end this day-to-day turmoil and misery. For Confucius, it was hierarchy. That was the answer. Hierarchy of the state and of the family. Know your place. Defer to the father. Obedience. That's the tough, that's the toughest question. Plato wrestled with this too. Just like Plato, we have Plato to thank for Socrates. Without him, we'd have nowhere near the kind of knowledge we have of Socrates and Socrates' influence. You have to look at it and also say, what about Plato? Got infused into these Socratic dialogues. What views of Plato? Plato also had a, an affinity for hierarchy and obedience and knowing your place. I don't like order and peace and order and discipline. I don't like it when it means the wife should be subjugated to a husband. I like partners. I like equality. I like that fusion, two equal partners. I'm the same way with subjects and rulers. 
I don't like blind authority for its own sake. I don't like authority imposed because you know your place. I like the respect to be earned, the authority to be not something that's taken for granted or based on status or birth or role. I want it to be freely given by a subject who understands and has respect for his or her leader. So, if the selection by Confucius has these values in mind, if he was saying, let's look at the pool of 3,000 and choose the poems we want to include in this collection, not because they're the best or the most vivid or the most beautiful, the most representative of life, or the ones that have the most heart and soul, but because they promote my ideas of hierarchy, well, for me, that would be a problem. I don't want to read poetry as a, a textbook that's disguised as poetry, or I, I can read it, but I'll read it differently. I'll read it looking for signs of life, for those green shoots popping up in the desert. And I'll read it wondering about the 2,700 poems that were left out. Was that what Confucius was doing? Listen to this quote, where he was proud of the Xijin, proud of the 305 he chose. And he said, This collection is expressive of enjoyment without being licentious, and of grief without being hurtfully excessive. Is that good? I'm a little troubled by that. These are the songs of the people, of the folk. To the people who are singing because it's pouring out of them without an agenda. At least that's the ideal. Who says what's too licentious? Who says what's hurtful and excessive? Who gets to be the judge of that? Why Confucius? Why is it his sensibility that denies the rest of us the 2700 that might be more meaningful to us, might be more resonant with our own experience? Grief is hard. Why would you sandpaper down those edges? What is hurtfully excessive? What does that mean? It might be that the grief that Confucius thinks is excessive and hurtful is the grief that would matter the most to me, to know that someone else felt the way I do about grief. Here's another quote. See what you think of this one. He says, by these poems, you can stir people and you can observe things through them. You can express your resentment in them and you can show sociable feelings. Close to home, you can use them to serve your father. And on a larger scale, you can use them to serve your ruler. Moreover, you can learn to recognize many names of birds, beasts, plants, and trees. There's good things and, and bad things in that quote. I like the first part. You can stir people. You can observe things through them. Confucius once said to his son, if you don't learn these poems, you'll have no way to talk. And that's one of the things they did or that they've always done, actually, with these poems. Even the simple poems. They're used in other situations. They're used as metaphors. They're used as sayings to express things, common idioms that you can use them in a different way. 
I suppose they use them like cliches as well, but you can also use them in an unusual situation to make a point. I like that. I like the way it's used here. I, I like the very first part of that quote the best. You can stir people with these poems. But then the second sentence gets me at what troubles me about Confucius. Close to home, you can use them to serve your father. And on a larger scale, you can use them to serve your ruler. <sighs> Troubling. I don't know that I want poems to be used in this way. Maybe it's good. Maybe it's there's an aspect of this where you could speak out about a ruler and censorship was was strong, you could use a poem to make a point, to undermine that ruler, to point out the problems with that ruler. That's a good usage, but the values, the underlying values of the poems coming through, is that happening? What do I think? After reading all the poems, what do I think? Are these Confucius as being a Something like a school marm, keeping the licentiousness from us? Or is it him brainwashing the masses, teaching them blind obedience, fealty to authority, instilling that in them, using it as part of his plan for knowing your place? I think a couple things. I think there's a depth and a range that I see in the classic of poetry. I think it transcends Confucius. I don't think he was able to limit it, harness it. I see it coming through. There's love songs, there's marriage songs, songs about hunting, the life of a soldier, banquets, abandoned women, grief. There's a picture of life here that goes beyond the lessons of Confucius. This doesn't feel like Songs you would be forced to learn in order to demonstrate your loyalty to your leader. There's enough life here. Second thing I think is that translation matters. Hard to tell in English how I feel about the sandpapered edges that I talked about earlier, about the licentiousness whether these were chosen to be happy and light. The agenda of the translator here is important as well, because listen to this quote. This is from a translator of the Xijing in the 19th century. He says, If it will detract in any degree from the apathy shown by English people towards the literature of the Far East, let me say in conclusion that though the poetry classic of the ancient Chinese may be despised as poetry and may be looked upon only as rhymed prose, yet it has at least the merit of its age. And in one important respect, it surpasses such poetry as that of Burns and Byron and Heine and many other popular balladists. It has the merit of a greater morality. Quote, I may assure the reader, end quote, remarks, 
Professor von der Gabelins of Leipzig in a discussion on these poems, quote, that in this whole collection of odes, and indeed in the whole canonic and classical literature of the Chinese, so far as I know it, there is not a line to be found which might not be read aloud without any hesitation in the most prudish society. I know of no other literature of the East or West on which similar praise could be bestowed. Now, I think I've made clear, to me, that's not praise at all. That sounds like you're running from something. To have every line be read without hesitation in the most prudish society, the most prudish society, I don't want them to be setting my my limits on what kind of poetry I can hear or what people are talking about. Translation matters. If that's the translator, if that's what he's looking for, he can make everything, he can tone everything down. You can, there's a way to make poems less licentious through translation. I'll give you some examples of that. We'll take a look at a poem in different translations. This is from the Xi Jing. It's a short one. I'll read you a few different examples. I think the difference here is astonishing. This one is called The Dead Roe Deer. It has different titles based on the translator. This one is by Stephen Owen. Dead Roe Deer. Let me explain the second line of the poem in each of these translations. talks about white rushes or white reeds. That's a was a traditional way to dispose of the dead of an animal carcass to wrap it in white reeds. That's what that's referring to. This is the Stephen Owen translation. Dead roe deer. A roe deer dead in the meadow, all wrapped in white rushes. The maiden's heart was filled with spring. A gentleman led her astray. Undergrowth in forest dead deer in the meadow, all wound with white rushes, a maiden white as marble. Softly now, and gently, gently, do not touch my apron, sir, and don't set the cur to barking. Now, we know what's going on here, I think. A gentleman led her astray. That's a way to interpret that. That's a choice by the translator gives us a sense of what's happening here. The maiden's heart was filled with spring. A gentleman led her astray. Maybe took some liberties, took advantage of her spring-filled heart. But this is pretty genteel. The switch to the first person, the striking in such a short poem, the last three lines are in first person. Softly now, gently, gently. Do not touch my apron, sir. Very prim, proper. Don't set the cur to barking. I don't, I don't know why you use cur. Maybe is that, is that a word that's more commonly used in, in the UK these days? And I'd say, say dog. I don't know. Because it's an old poem doesn't mean you have to use old, outdated English. I don't get it. 
Here's the next example. This one is by David Bowles in uh, 2003. Translation should be more modern for us, right? In the wilds, there is a dead doe. In the wilds, there is a dead doe wrapped in white rushes. There was a young lady with springtide thoughts. A lucky warrior led her astray. In the woods is a stand of scrub oak. In the wilds, a dead deer bound round by white rushes. And once a young lady, fair as jade, slowly, gently, gently, don't touch my handkerchief. Hush, or the dog will bark. Once again, I just want to say how much I admire this poem. I really like it. I like the the juxtaposition of the dead doe wrapped in white rushes. What is that doing there? It sets the scene, nature again, but again. Man, so stark. So vivid. Here again we have the verb. I don't know if it's a verb. Led her astray. Astray is the word I'm talking about. Astray. We know what that means. This springtide thoughts. This one makes it even more clear. Lucky warrior. We know what it is to get lucky. The other one had a gentleman. This one's a lucky warrior. But listen to the end when we switch to the first person. Don't touch my handkerchief. What did we see last time? My apron. An apron or a handkerchief? That's very different. Do not touch my handkerchief. Makes it sound like the two are sitting on some bench. Maybe he's leaning in, but they're still kind of a world apart from them. Now here's one. David Hinton. Listen to this. In the wilds, there's a dead deer. <laughs> I like this. Let me pause here. I like this that he doesn't even bother with row. Who knows what a row is? The dead deer. Find this title promising. I like David Hinton. I like the way he's going straight at it. In the wilds, there's a dead deer. In the wilds, there's a dead deer, all wrapped in bleached reeds. And there's a girl feeling spring, as her fair love brings her on. In the woods, there's thicket oak. In the wilds, there's a dead deer, tangled tight in bleached reeds. And there's a girl, skin like jade. Slowly, oh yes, slip it off slowly. My skirt, oh yes, don't mess it. And don't start that dog barking. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs> how do we get... How do we get there? Slowly. Oh, yes. Slip it off slowly. My skirt. And here we have slowly, gently, gently. Don't touch my handkerchief. Those are the two very different translations. I'm not sure which is more accurate, which is correct. Maybe one is 
Maybe they're both defensible. Maybe a, a Chinese reader could read it in both ways. It'd be nice. It would say a lot about the power of poetry. If you could take both of these very different translations from it, maybe you can. Maybe you can interpret it both ways. What an astonishing difference. I tend to think that the don't touch my handkerchief is maybe a little closer. It's hard to imagine Confucius letting this one slip through. It's hard to imagine the the German scholar in the 19th century saying you could read it in even the most prudish society. Slip it off slowly, my skirt. Oh, yes, don't mess it. And don't start that dog barking. That, that, that is not a maiden being led astray at all. This isn't a lucky warrior who's managed to finagle his way into a woman's heart. This is a woman in with springtide thoughts, feeling spring. That's David Hinton's phrase. There's a girl feeling spring. I guess so. Don't start that dog barking. I like that too. A command. You. Not like a, a simpering plea. Don't touch my handkerchief, please. You. Flip off my skirt. Don't mess it up and don't start that dog barking. <laughs> Excellent. I suspect that's maybe not the most faithful translation. The poem I enjoyed the most of the three. So let's leave things there. Should you read the Xi Jing? You should find the translation that works for you. Definitely. Sample a few. Imagine yourself in a world in China long before cars or trains or television or the internet. Just people. Simple people. On the dusty roads, in the fields, in the forests. Floating down the river. Gazing at the mountains. Just people getting on with the business of life. The aching, agonizing, joyous, grief-stricken, ecstatic, beautiful business of life. That's it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. We're starting our holiday schedule now. Don't be lonely. We'll have some holiday thoughts for you on Thursday. Remember, you can subscribe to the History of Literature on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. I'm Jack Wilson. Thanks for joining me on the History of Literature, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>